Before we get into the show, I'd like to request a couple of things from you, if you wouldn't mind. When you've got the time, I'd love you to head over to bjjstrength.com forward slash free. J-Y-M-B-A-L-L free. I'll put the link below. And that's for you to get access to some free content from the incredibly well-received and my latest program, the Gym Ball for BJJ course, which is using a gym ball or a stability ball, depending on what terms you use, to dramatically improve um, your movement for jiu-jitsu. I'll put the link below, but head head over to that page and you can get access to some free content from it. Or you could even head to bjjstrength.com forward slash gym ball if you want to take a look at the full program and take a look at all the testimonials you know whatever is best for you um but if you're interested in strength and conditioning um you know one-on-one coaching some of the other free material that i have like the breathing for bjj course you can also head to bjjstrength.com forward slash programs Unfortunately, even though I'm British, I've used the um, American spelling because I think it's easier and quicker. So a program spelled P-R-O-G-R-A-M-S. Again, I'll I'll put the link below. Um, But more than anything, guys, if you do enjoy the content that I put out on the podcast or on any other channel, really, one of the biggest ways that you can support me and support the podcast is by spreading the word um, about the show whether it's via social media, putting put a link of one of your favorite shows and sharing it to people uh, on your Facebook page, on your Instagram, me- sending it to people, or just when you're talking to people at the gym and you know, you're know you sharing some of maybe some of the knowledge that you've picked up, let people know where they can find the show. And what really, really helps more than anything to help grow the audience and grow the podcast is go on to whatever platform you use, whether it's iTunes or another platform, if you could leave a rating and a review, um, I'll be sure to you know give, give as many people as I can a shout out when they do that. But these things are an incredible help for the podcast and an incredible way to support the show. But with that, guys, you know, check out the links in the show notes if you've got the time. Otherwise, let's get on with the show. I just got f- finished recording a really great podcast or at least I think it's going to be great it it was for me and it's all to do with strength and conditioning for rock climbing the person I interviewed was Steve Bechtel um, a name that I wasn't familiar with until a couple of weeks ago Steve has been in the climbing game for nearly 30 years and has you know worked as a strength and conditioning coach for climbing for over two decades I believe he's worked or works with um, some of if not the best rock climbers in the United States um, so has an incredible wealth of knowledge for strength and conditioning for rock climbing and I think that has a really great translation transition I should say to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu not because of just the obvious grip strength right I can't think of a sport that uh, requires more grip strength than than rock climbing but also when you think of uh, you know rock climbing being such an intense sport in practice as jiu-jitsu is you know there's a real balancing act between doing the right kind of strength and conditioning that you know, allows you to get better at your sport but doesn't really hinder your performance and I think it's a big factor that we get wrong in in the jiu-jitsu world as well we try to do too much off the mat and it hinders with our training so we talk about a bunch of stuff we talk about periodization we talk about um 
grip strength obviously specifically one of the best ways to develop finger strength for rock climbers i think finger strength as opposed to you know just crushing type grip strength is something that we don't do as much in jiu-jitsu so it's great to talk to steve about that we talk about um his the idea of first order versus second order versus third order training effects the way the ways that he likes to uh, his athletes to test their readiness before training uh, you know the recovery we talk a lot about recovery some interesting systems he uses with the athletes and a whole host of other stuff i really enjoyed the conversation barely scratched the surface of steve's knowledge if if you if you enjoy this podcast let me know he's he's offered to get back on um i've put all the information at the bottom of the show notes where you can find steve and some great information he has online but with that guys as i said if you if it, if it does you know if it is a good interesting podcast for you let me know hit me up on instagram hit me up on my email or whatever way you can find me um at bjj strength on instagram and we'll be sure to get steve on in the future but with that let's get on with the show you're listening to the BJJ Strength Podcast, helping you be your best physically, on the mats and off the mats. The BJJ Strength Podcast, with your host, BJJ Black Belt, and physical optimization specialist, Lawrence Griffiths. Hello, you lovely, lovely people. Welcome to the latest BJJ Strength podcast. I'm very lucky to have today uh, with me Steve Bechtel from Climbstrong, uh, which is one of the one of the leading companies um, in person, but also does a lot a lot of online programming specifically for and strength and conditioning for rock climbers. And you know, Steve's been in the game I think for at least thirty years, and he can correct me if I'm wrong in a second used to be a full-time climber were you a pro climber at one point um well no i was i was full-time before there were pros before Um, there was money yeah before there was money so (laughs) so yeah we we just we worked on credit so as we were talking talking about before um you know we started recording i think there's a huge amount of crossover between the the strength and conditioning for jiu-jitsu and rock climbing um the grip strength is the obvious one, but how you manage the training intensity versus you know sports practice, which can be very intense, versus the strength and conditioning, which is also very intense. Uh, you know, a lot to do with you know longevity and health within the, the the hands, the elbow and shoulder joints. All of this really good stuff. So I'm I'm really excited to speak to you. I, I know people are going to love the content, but why don't you give a, a quick introduction and we can we can go from there. Yeah, so my name's Steve Bechtel. I own a company called Climbstrong, um, and I also own a uh, fitness center and climbing gym in Lander, Wyoming. And uh, I, I started out just um, wanting to learn about training for climbing. And, and so as I, um, well, I started out as a climber, and, and I was really weak, and I was actually kind of heavy as a little kid. I was 14, 15 years old, pretty fat, and Um, Just happened to start climbing with a a really high-level climber um, because all climbers need a a climbing partner um, to to hold their rope and to belay. And so this guy was um, stuck in central Wyoming. He was working in the oil fields, and nobody really climbed. And I was really interested in it, and just uh, luck would have it that we met. And he's like, okay, I'll teach you how to climb. 
if you can belay me on, on these harder climbs. And, um, and then I was interested in getting better and he was like, you're too fat and weak to be a good climber. Did so, he use those exact words? Those exact words. And he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's still a great friend of mine and he's still just cut and dry with everything. Um, but it, it was really fascinating. He was a, uh, a former All-American football player that had switched over to rock climbing, so built um, more for football. But, but really in the, in the late 1980s, knew a ton about training um, and, ha- and was applying that to climbing. And, and so one of the first things he did was say, say to me, you need to do 100 pull-ups a day in, you know, in order to get in shape. And I could do like one. Um, and so it started out being 100 sets of one. And I'd write it on a little chalkboard in my room. And then eventually I could do two. And then by the end of three months, you know how you are when you're 16, uh, I could do 10 sets of 10. And, wow. and, and so then when it came time to go to college, I was like, you know, I want more of this. And so I majored in exercise science. And, um, it, you know, the rest is history. So was it a little bit like the Wild West when you first started to climb in in, in regards to the approach to strength and conditioning? Yes, for sure. And there was always a, there's a anti-societal kind of culture to climbing. You know, we're, we're not going to work. We're going to eat out of dumpsters. We're going to steal food from the cafeteria in Yosemite. Um, And so when people brought structured training and, and focus and, and uh, projecting where you try to do the same climb over and over and over rather than to try to do it on your first go. Um, there was a lot of resist- resistance to that. But, you know, here we are 30 some years later and people understand that projecting and working really hard at, at learning the moves of a climb um, and getting the strength uh, in your fingers, the ability to memorize those moves, uh, you can climb way, way harder and, and get more enjoyment out of the sport. And so training has become quite mainstream, um, and especially with the prevalence of climbing gyms now. I would, I would guess that when you see 30, this is roughly 30 years ago when you got into yeah. climbing. Yeah. yeah, 1986, yeah. So, so I, would, I, I would guess at that point in time, a lot of the literature focused on strength and conditioning would be very much around... Uh, probably very sports specific, like American football, like the sports mm-hmm. that ha- had the money, you know, very yeah. specific in terms of the contractile tissue and yeah. performance, very little probably to do with the connective tissue and the joints. And Right. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, we were reading bodybuilding magazines and going like, oh, well, you know, uh, one of the moves you have to do in climbing is compression, like pulling to your hands together to hold, hold yourself on a, on a rock. And so we're like, oh, yeah, we'll do pec deck at the Nautilus gym, you know, um, and not, not really understanding that there's, there's a little bit more to it. And so you start with mimicry of movement. You start like, what am I going to do that makes my forearms tired? I'll do wrist curls and reverse wrist curls because they make my forearms tired and climbing also does. And we judged the efficacy of the training by the result it produced on the acute level, the first order result. My arms are tired, therefore it must have been good training. Mm. Um, and you know, I was in the era of you know very low fat diets and uh, really, really working on endurance. Um, you know, most of the most of the early stuff I learned uh, was on triathlon, marathon, things like that, or bodybuilding. And and it wasn't um, you know probably until the late 1990s that, that I started 
really going like, wait a second, let's look at, um, let's look at this, this sport in, in, in the demands of the sport, you know, what, what's required um, in the training in order for us to, to perform better. Yeah, I think you, you, it's, it's a perfect example with I'm going to hold on to something because my arms get tired in climbing. I want to make my arms tired when I train as well. And I think people go down the same route in jiu-jitsu a lot with I'm a big fan of just hanging from a pull-up bar. It's a great, it's a great exercise. But then you start to use the same energy systems over and over and over. Mm-hmm. And so it, it would be good to to explain for a non-climbing audience what that I think the, the perception could be well rock climbing is, you know develops incredible strength on its own which would be yeah. somewhat true so why would someone who's a rock climber also need additional strength and conditioning on top of climbing yeah. itself well that that's a great question and and I'm going to start with a story and I was at the Olympic Training Center in Oh gosh, probably the early 2000s. And I was down there for a, um, a cycling certification with, with USA Cycling. And it was a five-day certification or something. And we got a tour of the facility and got to go watch the athletes train and stuff. And we walked into the weight room and it's, one, it's the most beautiful Olympic weight room you've ever seen. You know, it's just filled with racks and all the, all the best equipment. And uh, there's this group of women training in there and they're doing clean and jerk they're doing snatch they're doing heavy deadlifts and we're like whoa how cool is it and and you know to see the actual u.s women's weightlifting team training and uh the guy that's given the tour says oh, no this isn't the weightlifting team this is the u.s triathlon team and uh, wow. we're all like whoa what you know why in the world would they need to clean and jerk and they said that the the uh, the ability to produce force um, is, is important throughout athletics. You know, they, they train, uh, you know, they'll weight train the badminton team. They weight, weight train the tennis players. They weight train triathletes. Everybody can benefit in their sport by greater force production and greater power production. And so it was really enlightening to me because for so many years before that, I simply tried to pursue fatiguing my arms as much as possible in any given training session. If my fingers hurt, if my forearms were sore, if my abs were sore, I trained well. But as Charles Staley says, fitness is the result of what you did, not how it felt. Mm -hmm. So if you and I went out and we got drunk and crashed the car, we'd be sore, we'd be (laughs) nauseous, um, but it wouldn't make us, wouldn't make for good training. Right. And so pursuing that, that, um, initial result is is not really what makes good training and it's really interesting lawrence because um a lot of times the first order result of something we do is is uh seems like a good idea but the second order result isn't and what i mean by that is um maybe you uh you know you go out to the bar you meet somebody that's cute you hook up with them and then the next morning you're like oh that was a mistake (laughs) right same thing happens with training you go in and you you do some really gnarly training, uh, you know, mega CrossFit workout followed by intervals, followed by something else. And you're like, man, I am trashed. But three days later, four days later, five days later, you're still not recovered. Um, you've pretty much diminished the value of any training that you did. And you just lost five days of, of what could have been really good training. 
or if you or if you use the night out at a bar incident nine months later maybe you haven't fully recovered right yeah it's it's really true and and so it's it's fascinating because we do pursue that like how did it feel but we've always got to go back to did i improve my performance and so, that's that's the huge key to training versus exercising so, so you talked about first order and second order. Is there a third order or is it first order and second order? I'm trying to get to the principles behind this. this yeah, like well, so the third order result of any of our activities is, is what happens across a lifetime, right? Mm. And, and if, I, if I train intelligently across my lifetime, I'm going to have a longer career. I'm going to have fewer injuries. And I'm going to be able to pass on good knowledge to the next generation, mm. right? If I train, and we've seen it with so many youth athletes, with Olympians, uh, football is a, is a really great example where people go so hard in that sport that they're crippled before they're 30, um, and they're, they're, they should be considered disabled, uh, where you know, they used to be some of the greatest athletes in, in the United States. Um, and so what we really look for is how do we create longevity in the athlete? Um, and how do we create a, a long-term training plan that continues to produce good results? Fascinatingly, um, certain sports show athletes continuing to improve late, late, late into their lives. Golf is a great example. You can keep getting better at golf when you're 70, 80 years old. Endurance-oriented sports, um, people can, can still improve some of their endurance capacity, um, some of their endurance qualities for a very, very long time. And interestingly, rock climbing, even into midlife, um, I'm, I'm in my late forties now and I did my hardest climb, uh, two years ago. Wow. Um, and, and it's because of the skill component and it's because we've created enough, uh, what we call durability or robustness in the athlete that they can continue to train at a high level. I'm. If you see me looking away, I'm fast making notes. Um, oh yeah. yeah. But a, another example would be even within mixed martial arts, there are in fighting in the UFC some fighters in their early forties. Yeah. It, it can be. It can be done with a smart approach to training. And yes. The, the average age, at least on surveys I've I've done for jujitsu athletes, is thirty-five. Mm-hmm. So it, it's. It, I think it pays dividends. Yeah. To think long term and really train smart. Yeah. With an older athlete, we need to really manipulate our wisdom, you know, our life, our life lessons, um, mm-hmm. our discipline. Um, and, and I also, I think the busier you get as an adult and you're like, Oh, I've got all these things to juggle that actually helps you, um, because you get very, very focused with your training time. And mm-hmm. it also keeps you from overtraining. Cause you're like, I, can't, I just can't go to the gym today. I got a soccer game and I got to go to the grocery store and I got, you know, the, um, and so what, what we look for with, with an older athlete is an understanding that they still can make those adaptations. They can still adapt to the training program, but it might take a little bit longer, right? And, and that's really, that's really a, a good news for these athletes because if they go in and they try to do the same training program they did when they were 22, they're going to hurt an elbow, they're going to blow out a shoulder, or they're just going to fl- just go flat overtrain right away. But if you say, listen, instead of doing uh, training two days on, one day off, let's train every other day or train one day on, two days off. Um, And then all of a sudden they're starting to see positive adaptations. We're seeing those numbers go up and they're performing well again. And and that's that's really what uh, athletes are looking for as they as they move into middle age.
so if we bring it back to the second order then and picking up what you're saying you know does it has it improved my performance a lot of it will come down to measurement i'm guessing and looking setting out what are we trying to improve and tracking that over time to see if it's actually going up or down right and and so with climbing it's really hard to say i am better at the sport because there's there's a lot of factors that go into it there's emotional Mm -hmm. stuff uh there's fear involved with some climbing there's um a whole number of you know we we run right through all the energy systems we're using the full body and so there's a lot of parallels between this and martial arts um, and so when we look at, at, you know, like jujitsu, it's like, am I better? Well, maybe I'm winning more matches, but maybe that's because, um, because I'm, you know, fighting against people that aren't as good. Right. And, or, you know, maybe I'm just getting lucky, you know? So it's really hard to just go like, yeah, I'm, I improvement is, you know, I improve because I'm winning. But what we look for is what are the, what are the markers of improved performance in strength, in power? Um, in strength endurance, um, and are those numbers going up? Because then those should be indicative of the athlete reaching a higher level that then they can use as a platform to build their skills on top of. What are the tips? Go, go, ahead. go ahead. Oh, yeah. So, so that's what we look for. We, go, we, we look for, in, in climbing, we look for a way to measure their improved finger strength. Um, we try to look for uh, improvements in work capacity. Um, we look for improvements in, in general strength. Um, and, and it's somewhat individual because if I take a bunch of climbers that don't, you know, say they don't clean and jerk and then we, we test them, you know, week one, they're all going to suck. And then if they practice a little bit, whether they get more powerful or not, their clean and jerk is going to go up. And so we need to test in things that they've mastered. And so it normally will do things like pull-ups, um, you know, like a weighted pull up, um, rate of force production, um, those sorts of things. What are you using for the, uh, the rate of force production? Um, you, you know, we we use a strain gauge. Um, there's a, there's a really inexpensive unit that, that is popular in climbing right now called the Tindec, T-I-N-D-E-Q. But then there's a, a company that called Exergio that does a thing called the G-Strength. And that's a much more robust unit. It gives, it gives much better data. Um, and, uh, and we can do, we can do max force, like, um, you know, how much they can, they can pull in an isometric position. And that's, that's really indicative of, of an improvement in concentric strength as well. Yeah. I, cause isometric strength is one of those things. How, how do you measure it? Yeah, I'm, right. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of a lot of, you know, straight arm strength work because with jujitsu, you're posting your arms out. Yeah. And you can look at the different positions and the, the change in leverage, but it's hard to measure how much yeah. force you're producing. So, okay, that's interesting. Yeah. So we, we do, um, we can test with the G strength. We can um, put the lifter on a platform, um, attach the G strength to the platform with chains, and then have them do an isometric pull like a mid thigh pull, yep. um, just deadlift position. And you're like, oh, okay, that, that number went up. Um, it's a pretty, it's a pretty simple movement. So there's not a lot of skill involved in it. So you're not going to see, um, a lot of learning, learning to the test. Um, and then we also will do the same thing pulling from overhead with their fingers holding onto a little, uh, like a, a fake climbing hold yep. um, that's attached to the strain gauge. There's a, there's a thing called a, 
a block. The company is called Tension Climbing, and they make a thing called the Tension Block, and it's a little piece of wood. It's about four inches by six inches, and it's got a little a bunch of little holes drilled in it. And we can um, use that to attach to the strain gauge and test their strength. And then climbers can use that as like a mobile training device. They can take it on an airplane or whatever. It's called the block. Yeah, the block. By yeah, tension. I'll need to look at that. And there's a lot of people that, are geek, that geek out on grip strength. Yeah. So we'll be looking at that one. So th- is, that the, is that the main way to, to measure grip strength? Or would you also place someone on a particular kind of hold and measure them how much weight they could add while holding that hold? Yes, and that's how we used to do it all the time. Okay. The really nice thing about, about testing with the, with the strain gauge is you can go right down to like the you know, eighth of a pound and you just go and get these exact numbers. We'll test them once a month. It's really, really quick and easy to do. Mm-hmm. But we can also have them hold onto a hangboard, which is like a mobile uh, uh, board that you can put above a doorway that's got some different uh, grips on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, they can hang on to it. And we add 10 pounds to their waist. And if they can hang for five seconds at that weight, we have them step down, they rest, we add a little bit more weight. And, um, and that's a really great way of, of um, testing. But they start to learn and they, they learn to integrate a little bit more, um, uh, you know, their shoulders into it. They learn to brace their core. They need learn to control their breathing. And, and so they, the fewer, um, the fewer components to a grip strength test, the better. I also like a simple, like a dynamometer test left and right. Um, and, uh, you know, and that's, that's a crushing strength rather than an isometric strength but it's, it's really close and it's just a number. It's just a testing number. And, but if we see those numbers start to creep up, we know that athlete is getting stronger. When the athlete is stronger, they're better able to execute the skills of their sport. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's more than that. It's more the improvement in the number that, than how they measure that's important. Right. And it's psychologically, it's the success that's important. Like mm-hmm. you can, you, you know, like you can continually go along and be like, you know, I, I'm not, I haven't felt like I've gotten better. I'm not getting better. I'm not getting better. And people, people really want quick results from things. And so if you are able to test them monthly on some specific parameters of strength or power, um, they're like, oh, well, I, I know I'm getting a little better at climbing, but uh, you know, my vertical jump improved. And that's really awesome because I know that vertical jump correlates to total body power and total body power will then allow me to, again, better execute the skills of my sport. So we like to test, you know, finger strength. We like to test vertical jump. It's easy to test with the new apps and stuff. So it's, it's, um, it's good to do. Yeah, there's, there's a lot more to the physical requirements needed for a good rock climber than just grip strength. Right. Yeah. Well, well it's true. It's like the strongest guy uh, in, in, a, you know, in jiu-jitsu is not going to win the match, right? The guy with the highest VO2 max, people are obsessed with VO2 max in aerobic um, sports in running and, and training, but there is no correlation between VO2 max and where people place in the Tour de France. I mean, it's really? like, it's, oh no, it's all over the place because there's other factors involved. Yeah. You know, we've got an- anaerobic capacity, we've got desire, you know, we've got tactics, you've got all these other things. And so VO2 is a great number, but it doesn't mean anything when it comes down to placing. Same thing in a marathon, you'll have a guy with a astounding VO2 max that just has a really bad stride. Um, and you'll have a guy that's got a pretty good VO2 max who's got an awesome stride that's going to kill that guy. I was teaching a class yesterday and 
one of the guys I train with was complaining that he changed his training recently and he was feeling tired all the time. And he said, oh, I need to do more cardio. And I asked him what was his resting heart rate, which is, you know, it's another measure. And he's in his mid to late forties, I believe, and his resting heart rate is 45. Yeah. See, I said to him, you're, you're fit enough already. It's a lot to do with, you know, your efficiency, your breathing, how much tension you're carrying when you're, when you're rolling all of these other factors, it's, it's not always, I, I encourage people to often, well, I, if you not think you're not fit enough, test your heart rate. Maybe it's the muscular endurance in certain groups of muscles, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's true. And, and you've got to look for those athletes will always go like, aha, you know, I need to do more of something. And sometimes these athletes are like, I just need to punish myself more. I don't, I don't want it bad enough. I need to, you know, I need to train harder, but training is half of the equation. And I love the, the recovery balance. Um, and and we, we look at it like a, like a seesaw. And the more training you put on one side, the more recovery you're going to have to put on the other side. And if it doesn't balance out, um, your, your athlete's never going to succeed. And so one of the things that we, we'll do is, is give points for recovery and points for training. And we do this with youth athletes. I do some, um, some work with uh, – national level youth competitive climbers and they are just like they show up at the gym after school and they'll climb at the climbing gym for six hours and then um they you know they'll come in the next day and they'll climb for six hours and they're continually overtrained. and so what we did was say okay for every hour of training you do you collect 10 points and then we ass- assigned values to recovery and so they had to get that 10 points back before they could go climbing again and so um, hours of sleep before midnight, um, hydration, protein intake, all, all, you know, foam rolling, all the things we know that are pretty good for us. If we got those athletes to focus on those things, they, um, they got those points back. And so these youth athletes really took to it and they go, they climbed for two hours, they got 20 points and they would have to go back home and they'd have to figure out how to get 20 points of recovery so that their coach would let them climb again the next day. And with youth athletes, it was as simple as, you know, like eat, eat a meal with protein in it. You get five points. If we got them to wash their hands after training, they got a point because a lot of them, <laughs> yep. they climb all over these plastic holds and then they wipe their hands on their faces. They get um, ill. Yeah. And so then they're sick and then screws up their training. So it's, um, it's all, that's a really interesting take on it. It's like you've made recovery competitive. We call it recovery training rather than resting. Because rest yeah. is for the week, you know, and you, you can always train harder and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I really think it's an important and fundamental part because we do, like your athlete, might have been at the limit of his work capacity. And the only way, that, well, I shouldn't say the only way, but the fastest way for him to increase his work capacity is to improve his recovery capacity. If he's super recovered, he's going to be able to work harder. Do you find that changes over time that people of an older age need more rest? Yes. Yes, for sure. And, um, and it needs to be in the form of like, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing this, you know, in order to get better, like just resting, just not training and eating pizza is, is uh, the very bottom end of, of recovery. And that's what we used to do. We're in high school. We can do anything we want now, you know, get, you know, take a, you know, you know, it, it, there are so many recovery modes. It's unbelievable. And some of them are more effective than others. The two huge ones, like there's the, there's the pyramid on the back of the dollar bill. It's a huge pyramid with an eye on the top of it. 
So the whole pyramid is, is nutrition and sleep. And then all the other stuff, foam rolling, massage, sauna, you know, whatever, those are all the little tiny eye at the top. But so improving that an adult sleep is, is really key. And so, and we know all about that stuff. Um, you, you, you know, you sleep in the dark room, you keep it cool. You don't drink caffeine in the afternoon, but improve your sleep to begin with. The second thing you do is you try to improve your nutrition, high quality nutrition. And, you know, whether you're paleo or keto or, you know, whatever, it's really hard to argue against eating high quality foods um, in their most natural state. The less processed stuff you're eating, um, the less stuff that you can't really identify, the better off you're going to be. It's back to basics. It is. And it's, but the basics are boring. You know, we always want to be like, you know, like we're, we're in this mode of like hacking everything, you know? And, and I like Tim Ferriss is, is I just love his writing and I love his, his podcast and everything else, but you, you can't hack everything. And one of the easiest hacks in the world is to like, you know, go out and shoot an elk and then pick some broccoli and have your dinner. Right. <laughs> he has a good saying actually that with the body, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's really interesting though but because we're always looking for the shortcut. Yeah. And so what we need to tell our athletes is don't look for an easier way. Look for a way to make yourself better, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like step up and, and do meal preparation. Um, I love, there's a guy named Josh Hillis and he has a, a book called Fat Loss uh, Happens on Monday. And it's a, it's a really simple um, uh, look at, at how people can and lose weight. And one of the suggestions that he had was take one of your one hour workouts for the day and replace that with a trip to the grocery store and some meal prep. And you're going to take that one hour of training and you're going to convert that into creating better fuel for yourself. And I love that idea. I think he's a, I think he's a brilliant guy. And it's like, man, how easy is that? You know, go figure out how to cook parsnips or something. You know, but you know, don't don't go down the cereal aisle. I think most people have probably never seen a parsnip. <laughs> yeah, right. It's not that common in the U.S., but we love them in the U.K. Yeah, so right. Very very good roasted. Yeah. <laughs> so, go going back to well, many different areas, but the the, the 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 a bit about grip strength. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the emerging thoughts around? the difference between the contractile tissue and the connective tissue and how we've got to look at strength and performance and longevity across the two. Yeah. Well, so it's, it's real interesting. I just went to a great conference and, and saw a whole uh, uh, presentation on fascia and, and you know, the different anatomy trains and things like that. And I, I'll say right away that I'm not an expert there, but what's really interesting is the fact that, we can see improvements in strength without seeing changes in the muscle, right? And we used to think, oh, we're just getting better muscle innervation. Um, you know, we're getting their, uh, their, your muscle fibers are agreeing better. But I think there really is something to uh, the ability to, to use this entire fascial network um, to, to create strength. And you've seen pictures of rock climbers. There's so many rock climbers that are very, very slight. Um, they have a tremendous amount of, of contractile ability and, and uh, ability to maintain tension, maintain tension. Um, mm. and, and so they're, they're very, very strong. Um, and so 
the whole idea that you just need to build more mass and more mass and more mass in those, in those forearms, um, I think is outdated. And that's counterproductive, I would guess, for rock climbers, because your strength to weight ratio at some point is going to tip the wrong way. Right. And, and so if we, if we think about how we build muscle, try to build hypertrophy, um, you know, it's medium loads, lots of volume, um, and that's counterproductive to performance because we're really trying to, to generate tremendous amounts of, of force with the forearm. That's the first thing. With climbing, we also, especially rock climbing as opposed to bouldering, bouldering is just done on uh, short rocks, 15, 20 feet high, um, and you don't need a lot of endurance. But on a full rock climb, the ropes are about 200 feet long, and so uh, a rock climb is sort of limited to that height. How long um, would how long would a, a so a, a bouldering climb is probably anywhere between say 20 seconds to a minute. Yes. How long would a, a longer climb be? Some of them can take 20, 25 minutes per pitch, and wow. so so here we have a huge problem because we're dealing with multiple energy systems, mm-hmm. and I want to talk about that when we get to talking about periodization and planning later in the in the podcast, but. Um, what happens is we, we want to continue to generate high, high amounts of force. And so if we start training hypertrophy, we actually are competing with that. It's a competing energy system. Uh, we're training more in that lactic or glycolytic energy system rather than the alactic energy system. And so we start to see a diminishing strength. And so you're going like, okay, I'm building this hypertrophy so that I can later build more strength. Well, I, I haven't seen a lot of evidence of that. Even if they get more hypertrophy, they haven't necessarily gotten stronger. And so I think a full focus on building a tremendous amount of strength is really important. What I've been reading recently is that there are two types of hypertrophy. One is uh, hypertrophy of the contractile tissues itself, and the other is then the growth of the fluid would be the wrong word but the materials between the contractile proteins and 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 when you my understanding is this that when you uh, you know grow the tissue between the contractile proteins that's the bodybuilder type muscle muscle growth um which is far less appropriate towards strength where you just uh, high high i always always struggle with that word (laughs) the growth of the contractile proteins yeah. And so that's a really interesting thing. And, and how, do we, how do we build actual hypertrophy in the contractile protein is through higher volumes of, of higher load training, right? And that's, that's how you get really, you know, dense, strong muscles in power lifters, in Olympic lifters. And you see uh, sprinters, same thing. It's, you know, sprinters don't have a lot of uh, unnecessary muscle. And that's one of the things. There are very, very strong bodybuilders, but there are also some very, very big bodybuilders that aren't all that strong. They're not near as strong as you would expect them to be. Yeah. And, and we all want to be uh, like, there's a, uh, one of the guys that works with me here, Alex Bridgewater, has a t-shirt that says, be stronger than you look. And I, and I love that. He, you know, like, it's like, it's exactly what you need. It's like, you don't want to look like the biggest, strongest guy in the room. You want to be the biggest, strongest guy in the room. I think nature as well has a way of cutting out stuff that is not needed. And there are certain sports like rugby or American football when you know, a certain level of strength and power and then mass 
yeah. can can be help, helpful, but for jujitsu, for rock climbing, if it's just for aesthetic purposes. Yeah. Uh, and actually, let me make another point as well. If anyone picks up any kind of weight training or any kind of resistance training at the start, you're going to get some improvements. But at, at a certain point, if you want to optimize that performance, you yeah. want that tissue and that muscle to be as productive as possible. Yes. Yeah, that's really true. And, and just as a, as a tangent from that, it's really fascinating. You probably get this from your jujitsu people. People are like, oh, I don't want to wait, lift weights because I don't want to get huge. And like, if you know anybody that's really into getting big and bodybuilding, it's, it's a, a tall order to get bigger from weight training. Like you have to really suffer in the weight room and you have to do a lot of it. And so what we do, you know, we, we train high level power, high level strength, very, very specific training, and nobody gets bigger. Like I, I, one of the guys that I consult is, is hands down the best uh, red point or uh, route rock climber in America. And like he's, he weight trains all the time. He's super, super into it. Very strong guy. He does, does lots of specific exercises, not getting bigger. Like if that guy can do it, everybody can do it. And I think the same is true in, in martial arts. They understand that like, you're not going to get slow and, and, and clunky from, from weight training. And that's, you know, in the early days of boxing, they were really afraid of that. Yeah. Even in, even in American football, apparently in the seventies, yeah, they, they, they want, they didn't want to slow down and it's the complete opposite, right? Speed yeah. is about force production. So, um, are there any specifically for developing strength in the connective tissues with the forearms and hands or any part of the body really? Are there any particular protocols that you look to use in terms of the load and intensity and the durations, etc.? Yeah, so we, I, I love durations um, uh, under six to seven seconds, but, but um, you, can do, you can do fairly frequent repetitions of that. So most of the strength training that we do for climbing is isometric in nature. You hold on to uh, 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 edge or uh, you can imagine like the climbing holds can be any shape. Sometimes they're sloping, they're big round holds. Sometimes there's, you can only fit one finger in a hole. Sometimes you're having to hold on to just a little tiny flake on the rock. And so we have lots of different hand positions, but almost all of them are held isometrically. Mm -hmm. um, and so somewhere between, you know, three and six seconds, um, and we can do normal uh, static loading, but we can also do uh, what we do call rate of force production, or you may even call it finger power because it's reactive. And so what they'll do is they have a thing called a campus board, and it's uh, several rungs. They look like uh, door jams, the top of a doorway, but they're stacked about every eight inches. And so you can climb up these things just, just with your arms, with, without, with your feet dangling. And Every single time that you reach one of these holds, there's a stretch shorten when you, when you grab it. You have a little bit of reactivity going on in your fingers. And that's a really fast way of building strength. Um, and of course, naturally, then we overdo it and get injured because that's, that's our human nature, right? But, but if they do it properly, it's, it's probably the fastest way to build a massive amount of finger strength. With the campus board. Um, yeah. So, but... I do have a question specifically on the campus board, but before that, when we say three to six seconds, 
um, I'm assuming that you mean it's got to be of a duration that if you really held on for the max, maybe you could only do for 10 seconds. So yes. You're not maxing out, but it's not something that you could do for 60 seconds, but you only hold for three to six. Right. And that's a really fascinating thing. And, and that's something that I just assumed people knew, you know, when I first started programming, I was, but I had a, I had a guy that I, I, I emailed a program to and I'm like, Oh yeah, you know, do five pull-ups, do um, five presses, five squats and, and then, and you're going to just like kill it. And so, you know, he's a really strong guy. And so he just did five pull-ups at body weight. No big deal. Does five air squats at body weight. And he does like five presses at whatever light dumbbell he can pick up. And he's like, man, that's the lamest workout ever. And I'm like, <laughs> Oh no. I mean like, yeah, do it at 85%. Right. And so that's the thing is that it needs to be hard, but doable. And, and one of the things I, I like is technical max. Like if your form starts to break down, um, that's when the set has to stop. Um, and you know, one of the, one of the people that I, I love to, uh, to read and study is Pavel Satsulin and you know, like yeah. his grease, the groove program is awesome. Do a couple of pull-ups, come back in 10 minutes, do a couple more pull-ups, but you're never, you're never quite tapping out. And, the, and a really great example of that is to do the hundred pull-up challenge. And you, you say, okay, everybody, we're going to, you go into your gym, you go, we're going to see who, see how long it takes you to do a hundred pull-ups. The guys are going to jump up there and they're going to max out on the first set. They're going to do 22 of them and their neck is going to be straining at the end and they're going to fight like hell for 22. And then they're going to be wrecked and they're going to end up doing 22 and then like doing sets of two all the way to hundred. But the smart person is going to do like four pull-ups step down and rest for 10, 15 seconds, do four more, step down and rest for 10, 15 seconds. And that 10, that hundred pull-ups is going to happen a lot quicker with the person that knows how to control their energy systems. And so mm -hmm. that's one of the things that I think is really, really important when we're prescribing exercise is to find a way of teaching intensity. But I'd like to see if I'm saying three to six seconds on an edge, uh, on an edge that you could hold for 10 seconds you know, or somewhere around, that's probably 70 to 80% of your max. On the campus board then, because I, you know, as I said, I climb occasionally and they can go up relatively high. Um, the height is irrelevant, I suppose. But would you ask someone to, over time, increase the speed at which they do it or add more resistance by wearing, say, a weighted vest? Um, I, for climbers, I would say to... Um, increase the distance that they're reaching between the rungs. So skipping, mm. skipping rungs as they go or to decrease the edge size, probably the campus board you've seen at your gym has three or four different edges as you go across. Yeah. And so going to smaller edges because that's more important for climbing um, is to, is to be able to hold on to smaller and smaller things and to reach further between them. Um, but that's a really interesting point you make, you know, do we go faster? Do we add load? the way that we manipulate the difficulty of the training is really critical. Um, and we see a, people make a huge mistake on that with conditioning. You know, they're all, they're always like trying to reduce rest. Like, Oh yeah. Like Tabata dude, let's go for it. You know? And, um, and, and what happens is like the quicker I can tap out, like if I can get a really killer workout in four minutes, that's way better than if I did this. But what, what we're really trying to look for is what is the proper adaptation for the sport. Yeah. And so when we're progressing, progressing intervals or conditioning, we have to be really careful what we're manipulating there. 
So you're changing the intensity by manipulating, uh, in some ways, complexity may be the wrong word of the exercise, yeah. but the technicality yeah. of the exercise. It's, it's, probably, it's probably technicalities and probably a, a good way of looking at its load because a smaller hold is more difficult to hold on to. And so you'll probably have to grip a little bit harder. And so you're, you're asking the muscle for more. But yeah, it is a, it, they are a, a, a subtle difference. It would be, you know, it'd be like um, rolling with somebody that has Vaseline on them or something, you know, harder to hold on to. There's, there's um, uh, anecdote would be the wrong word, but BJ Penn tried to claim that GSP put, put Vaseline on his body before one of the fights. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe some people do it. Yeah, whatever it takes to win, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's go into the periodization and okay. just oh, for me, I we can we can say periodization. Essentially, it means planning your yeah. training over a long term. Is the way I look at it. Yeah, and I think this is I find such a big challenge with a lot of people that I work with when it comes to jujitsu. How do you manage the load of a very intense sport with the strength and conditioning and People will jump in. They'll typically do, you know, uh, three sets of ten to twelve reps on a bunch of exercises, and come in after two to three weeks and complain they can't even drill technique. Yeah, I think it's, it's a it's a big topic. So I, I'd love to understand from your perspective, because rock climbing, if you're training the grips directly, when you're not yeah. climbing, there's no way that you can't climb without using your grip. So it, yeah, it, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, and the interesting thing about rock climbing is you have the opportunity, if you're just a recreational climber, you have the, rec the opportunity to perform year round. Like you can go out on the weekend, you go to Joshua Tree on the weekend, you can climb, you know, every weekend. You can find somewhere in the, in the, in the world to go climbing all the time. And so that, that's one of the great things about the sport, but it's also problematic. But if we, if we look at it, we, we have to understand that our bodies work cyclically. And so whether it's monthly or whether it's, you know, three times a year or twice a year that we're able to bring ourselves to a high level of fitness, um, it, it's, it's impossible to maintain a very, very high level of fitness at all times. Um, mm -hmm. It just doesn't happen. And so people that think that they're always fit, I argue are never fit um, because you can, you reach out there into that high level of performance you know, a few times a year and, and do some beautiful things in your sport. And then you come back and you recover and you get strong again. Um, you're able to focus on more general things and then you can ramp up that fitness again. So, so you could, you could, it, people can maintain a, a good all around general fitness. Yeah. But you're saying it's a good point, right? If you're, yeah. if you think you're always at the top, yeah. you're not, you're not, you're not at the top. Yeah, well, let me ask you this. What's your, what's your one rep max deadlift? Um, do you know what? It's interesting you asked me this today because I had a, um, I've not done a deadlift apart from picking up my kettlebells, I think in about seven or eight years. Okay. And when I did it seven or eight years ago, my max was about 440 pounds. Okay. And, and I, because I, I, I focused predominantly on kettlebells, um, yeah. quick, quick movement, kettlebell movements. Yeah. And I was debating with myself, maybe I should test myself after seven years to see where I am versus yeah. the kettlebell swings. But at the time, it was about 440 pounds. And, and just doing kettlebell swings, you can now do 450, right? I, that, that's, that's what I want to find out because, you know, yeah. You, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm a huge fan of kettlebells myself. But here's, what, here's my point. 
you, your max is 440 pounds. If you know that you could max at 440, would you be happy always being able to lift 280? You'd be like, that sucks. I know yep. I can do 440. And so just knowing that I'm fit anytime, always for 280, but I never really vary from that, that would be a real bummer for you. And so knowing that you can get to 440, you, you know, you'll come off of deadlifting and you're like, oh, I haven't done it in seven years, but you're like, that's the number. And I'm going to try to ramp back up to that again. And you can continue to do that. And with intelligent programming, we can continue to keep building our base up to where we, you know, we have this, this ability at all times and that 280 will keep going up and up and up. But climbers, you know, if you've climbed a grade, um, you know, like the, the climbing grades are like, um, you know, they're, they're numeric in order. And if you've climbed at a certain level, you, you're not satisfied with, with substandard performance. It would be like, you know, going, doing a half hour slower in your marathon. You, you're just like, that sucks. I want to be at my peak. And so performance is all about finding your peak ability and figuring out how to get back there as often as possible. I was watching one of your videos before we started and it was titled always training and never performing. Is yeah. that related to the same thing? Yeah. And so that's, that's an interesting thing. Uh, it's what, what that, what I was talking about there is we have a lot of people that are always getting ready to start, you know, ne next year I'm really going to go for it. And you probably, you might see this, you might have people that train for jujitsu. They do all the strength and conditioning Maybe they even roll a little bit in practice, but they'll never go compete, you know, or they'll never actually put themselves on the line. They'll never go out to a place where they're uncomfortable and they might fail. But the high performers in, in our sport, in climbing and in your sport, are the ones that are willing to risk it. They're willing to go out there. Our guys are willing to fall off the cliff. You, you don't always fall to your death. You know, the rope systems are really, really safe. Um, so, but they're willing to fall. They're willing to fail um, time after time after time. And a really great uh, grappler is going to be willing to lose matches or to look silly out there. Um, and so that's, that's what that's about is you, you need to actually go out and perform in the realm that you, that you claim to be training for. Um, so, but, but when we go back to the programming, it's really interesting because so many people will do the same workout routine week after week after week. Um, they always go into the gym, they lift the same weights, they do the same plan, whatever else. And I, I'm a big fan of repeating things, but I'm a bigger fan of progressing things, right? Um, I, I hate random training, um, but I, I think variability is really important. And so when we look at your athletes and you're like, how do we fit strength and conditioning and all those things in? One of the great rules of thumb that we have in, in climbing training is 75% of the time you should be working on your skills in the sport. Mm -hmm. And that means with your climbing shoes on climbing shoes, are these tight fitting, um, you know, shoes with sticky rubber on them. And they, you, you get really, really good, precise footwork with them on. And so 75% of your training or your practice time should be done with those shoes on. So they're actually in sports specific mode. Then 25% of the time, we work on getting stronger, more powerful, building specific endurance, um, working on flexibility, all that other stuff. Um, and and once, we, um, once we've done that 25%, we have people that love to do just grip work. You know, they're on the hang board, they're doing campus board, whatever else. Um, but 
very often we, we lose sight of it. We lose sight of the goal by just being so into the training that we are no longer, you know, like we were just saying earlier, we're no longer looking at performance anymore. It's like all I care about is getting more pull-ups now. You know, it, even though you started off trying to become a better climber. It can, it can get addictive. I'll use myself as an example here where I've got back into rock climbing recently. I, I had the itch to do it, um, something I've always enjoyed on and off. But to supplement the jiu-jitsu training as well and experiment with you know, that as a form of training. But I have to be careful. I'm, I'm, I get into stuff, right? I get, you know, I get into something I want to do at full ball, but having to really step back and go, what's the main priority? Yeah. Uh, but it's, so if we use the example of 75% sports-specific practice, 25% strength and conditioning, if someone climbed four times a week for one hour, then you would say uh, you know, two 30-minute sessions per week of strength and conditioning. Yep, that's probably about right. And they can combine them. Like you could – I don't know if, you're, if you guys can practice and train in the same facility. but Jiu-jitsu typically not. Yeah. So, you know, so, you know, you could, you know, go to your jujitsu practice, you know, grab something to eat, drive over to the weight room, um, you know, pick up some kettlebells and, and go to work. And, and that's, that's, that's what we really, you know, in our facility, we've got climbing gym. You may be able to see it even outside the window. A little here. bit. Yeah. Yeah. So the climbing gym is just outside the, the window of my office. Um, and then the weight room is, is that way. And so we can, we can combine those things very easily. But in, in the real world, I'll even ask my athletes to do it. Um, some of my athletes uh, are like full-time traveling or cli- they'll go climbing uh, out at these crags for a month on end. And so they'll, um, they'll go to the crag and then they'll come back to the car and pull out some weights. Get, you know, they have a hangboard that they can hang in a tree um, and they, they'll do strength and conditioning stuff to make sure that we're covering all those bases because the loading of the energy systems and the loading of the movements in climbing is somewhat random. Um, you know, like you might have a really hard day. You might really work your left hand hard and the right hand has it easy just because of the nature of the climb. Um, and so we try to even those things out with, with intelligent training afterwards, but I try to keep that, that volume low. I remember when I watched the documentary about Alex Honnold, when he, did the free solo in and then he came back down and did hangboard training yes i know isn't that great <laughs> i thought this guy is mad yeah and, and but that's the thing that's really interesting is that route that he did on el cap isn't technically a, a very difficult route for him um and so he probably you know again it's a long endurance activity i think it took him like three hours or something um at at a low level so primarily aerobic primarily at probably less than 50% of his max finger strength. And so then when he gets back to the van, he gets to do a strength training session, right? And so he's going to actually try to make those fingers stronger because one of his main goals um, is to get actually better at technical climbing, improve his grades, not necessarily free solo something harder, but to get better at the, at the high end of the, the technical end of the sport. Because he's, although he's elite, he's not at, at the super high end of the sport yet. Yeah, that's what I've heard, heard him saying in interviews. And I watched that free solo film, and I, even though I know he survives, yeah, my, my heart is in my mouth the entire time. But um, yeah, he, he, but he's he says himself that there are much better climbers than him. Yes, yeah, and and it's uh it's amazing, like that the high level of performance in the sport is 
is really impressive. And it's really a testament to the fact that there are, you know, there's lots of cliffs out there, but there's also lots of gyms and we're getting smarter with our training. You know, the top trainer, the top climbers are, are training really, really hard for big sections of the year. Sometimes they'll go off and they'll go climb on a climbing trip for a month and not do a whole lot of training during that time. But then it's like right back to work and I'm in the gym and I'm going hard. Do you find that sometimes you can run into problems where, with people doing back-to-back sessions like that where they finish a climbing session and then go straight into the, into the weight room? Yeah. Um, you know, more, more, more risk of you know, just overdoing it, overtraining injury and that kind of thing. Yeah. And so we do a couple of things. One, I, I'm really careful about prescribing proper um, sequencing of training. Um, and, and, and with the sessions, one of the easy things to do is to go, okay, I'm going to, um, train strength. Um, and then I'm going to train some explosiveness and then I'm going to train some energy system work. And then I'm going to finish up with a run on the treadmill. But what, what happens there is we've trained through all of the energy systems. We've trained multiple muscles through there. And there's really great research that shows that uh, endurance training after strength training diminishes the value of the strength training. And that's fine if you don't care about getting stronger. But if you do care about getting stronger, then we should spread those things out. Again, the first order effect of a workout like that is, man, I'm really, really sore and I earned a burger and beer. The second order thing is you didn't get any better at any of those things. And so we're really careful about that. Like, uh, is this athlete, you know, what does this athlete need to do today? And we'll try to focus um, their training on specific energy systems. If we're primarily a lactic, in that, that eight to, well, you know, like zero to 10 second range of, of activity, try to make a lot of that in that session and then let that athlete go home. If I do a lot of that stuff and then follow it with, with intervals or sprints, I just screwed that athlete up. Um, and so one of the things that, that we do is try to get these athletes to get a real value of their readiness to train. Like when I get to the gym, am I ready? And I, I think vertical jump is one of the best tests for that. There's, a, there's an app called Jump Power that you can get for your phone. And you just set your phone on the shelf and, and with the camera facing you and you walk out in front of it and you just jump and it tells you how high you jumped. Right? You don't need any sophisticated equipment or anything. Wow. So then the, the theory behind that being, while well, the research to back it up as well would be um, – you know, if you if you see that your jump is significantly less than it normally is, yep. it's telling you that that you know your central nervous system is essentially not firing and not ready exactly. to train hard. Exactly. Even you know, even like I, you know, if I go out and climb in the morning for for three hours and then I come back to the gym at seven p.m., I still might not be ready. And so if you if you get a baseline value, jump power is really easy to use. You could do it every day. And you're like, man, I'm always hitting, you know, I always do 24 inches, 24, 24, 24. And then if you're down by 10%, it's probably indicative of fatigue and it's not appropriate to train that day. So you can do recovery training um, or you could do a completely different energy system. Um, but I, I still think like if you have major CNS fatigue, anything besides easy aerobic training is probably too much. And you're going to get a better value out of waiting and training, you know, uh, 12 hours later or tomorrow. Do you, me- do you measure the resting heart rate? As um, well? 
I, I, I like to, but I can't get a consistent reading out of people on that. Um, if if we, uh, some athletes are great about it and, and it does provide really good data. And, and although, you know, the science on that is, is kind of wishy-washy. Sometimes it's more indicative that they're getting sick or something. Mm -hmm. It's another number. If it's going awry, there's something to it. Right. So I think that's, I think it's worth, I think it's worth monitoring as much as that athlete is willing to monitor. Yeah, just another measure, right, of the readiness, the readiness to train. And heart rate variability is something that I, I, I haven't done enough research on it to know that, okay, you know, use it this way for, for this kind of result. But I know it's another value of readiness. But that, that, I've never heard of the jump power app, and that's yeah. so simple, right? Oh, it is. You know, like we have a tape measure on the wall, and people could, could measure with that. But it's very rare that that athlete goes anywhere without his phone. And so if it's something that they can do with their phone, uh, that it's going to happen. And it's the same way we do. We make sure we do habit tracking with a habit tracking app just to make sure they're doing whatever. But if they can do it with their damn phone, then they're going to do it. And so jump power is really handy um, because there, you can get jump power numbers from every single day. I want to go back to the, the cycles and oh, yeah. the bike that we, we go up and down in terms of the cycles. How many cycles per year would you say that it's good for you know a, a well-conditioned, a well-trained athlete? How many cycles per year is it reasonable to expect someone to be at peak performance? Um, it, it depends on the level. Um, for elite level uh, athletes in our sport, I think three times a year for maybe three to four weeks if, they're, if you're really good. And that's a, that's a that's a lot. I mean, nine to 12 weeks of high performance is, is mm-hmm. really good. And, and, and then below that, a, a less high performing athlete um, that can have pretty good progress, but that's probably because they're physically not um, at their, at their peak and the technical skills needed for their level of climbing aren't quite as high. Mm. Right. You know, if I'm, you know, I don't know, I don't know the belt systems in jujitsu, but if I'm like white belt or whatever the bottom is, yeah, you know, yeah, my yeah. technical skill doesn't have to be as high as if I'm a black belt. When you, um, when, when you do jujitsu, everything becomes ranked in belts. Anything that you do, yeah. I'm a, you know, I'm an ex belt in jujitsu, but I'm a white belt in something else. Yeah. It's a good yeah, analogy. So, but, but so that's the thing. And, and so if, if I'm at a very low technical level of climbing, uh, there are many, many things that are going to help me get better. Um, and so, you know, I can probably be at my peak level more often during the year because I don't, I'm not having to manipulate just these very few things that an elite climber can do. And so when we, when we set up our training programming, we do a few different things. One of the things that I do for, um, the majority of the population, because their strength and conditioning is a very small part of what they're doing is we'll do nonlinear cycling. We'll do session one is a strength session. Session two is a power focus session. Session three is an energy system session. And then they can just plug those in um, however their schedule lets them do it as long as it's just a rolling cycle. So maybe you train two days one week, four days the next week, three days the following week, and it just goes strength, power, power, endurance, strength, power, power, endurance. And it just cycles through that. Works really, really well. And it's very simple for people. Um, And that's the thing. Is like you can have a super great plan on your spreadsheet, but if you don't do the damn thing, the spreadsheet isn't worth anything. And so if we've got to continue to make the training as simple as it needs to be for it to get executed. 
If we're not getting compliance, it's not worth writing the program. So, so then the other thing that I love is an alternating linear cycle where you'll go like three weeks of focusing primarily on strength and power and then three weeks of focusing primarily on conditioning because remember the technical aspect of our sport helps us maintain both of those just through being a climber. And so if we're leaning towards strength and conditioning in the weight room and then we lean, or excuse me, if we're leaning towards strength and power in the weight room for three weeks and then we lean toward conditioning for three weeks, we don't see those numbers diminish much as even taking three weeks off from pure strength training. And so that's a decent cycle for people to use too. So I want to bring out the point, uh, one of the nuances of what you said there, it's you lean towards. Yes. So you're not taking entirely away the strength and power, but you're putting a greater percentage of volume towards yes. a particular aspect over a period. Yes. And it's, it's interesting. If we look back at the Matvey of the classical periodization, um, people took that and they just screwed it up. And what, what was really interesting about that and what people don't understand is, number one, that program was designed for novices, the uh, classical periodization as we know it, you know, four weeks of strength, four weeks of power, four weeks of endurance, blah, blah, blah. Um, I guess it was the other way around for his, his weightlifters. But what, what he was doing is he was training weightlifters. And so you would do, you know, this big conditioning um, um, mesocycle, they call them. And then you do, uh, uh, you know, a hypertrophy mesocycle and then you do a strength mesocycle. But they're training for a sport that only uses one energy system and has a very, very short competitive period, which is the opposite of Brazilian jiu-jitsu or climbing, right? It's all, year, it's all year round. Yeah, and so you've gotta be able to train all of those systems at all times. And so I love um, like block style systems mm -hmm. where you're like, I'm allocating a greater percentage of my um, training into strength. You know, this month it's gonna be 30% strength, 30% power, 10% conditioning, you know, whatever, and then adjusting those levels like dimmer switches and on a light. Yeah, that, I, I don't know if you've done much reading on Soviet periodization. I'm probably going to guess that you have because I think you <laughs> seem to have read everything. But um, what, uh, that's something I've been looking into a lot more lately, and that's a big, a big aspect of that, right? Is you never entirely lose one quality, yeah. but, it, but I think it's another video that was up on your YouTube channel. I think it was someone else that had post, posted it that uh, I've got, I've got the title. Everything, everything is too much. You can never expect to yeah. have your max strength, your max power, your max speed, your max endurance yeah. all at the same time. It's just right. not going to, it's not going to happen. Yeah. And, and it's, it's a really interesting thing. And so it's not, it's not balanced. Like we always are seeking to balance all these things. It's really compromise. Like what am I willing to compromise in order to, in order to hold these things? But what's really fascinating is looking at adaptation persistence, how long each of these energies stays with you or uh, the systems like strength and hypertrophy are very persistent factors. Mm -hmm. Once you built them, it doesn't take long. It doesn't take much to maintain them. Like, okay, here's what, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get you back up to a 440-pound deadlift, and it's going to take a lot of work, and you're going to have to let a lot of other things go in order to build that up. But then I'm just going to have you deadlift once a week after that, and you're going to probably be able to maintain that 440. And then I'm going to take you back to deadlifting once every nine days, and you still might be able to maintain it. And then if I can take you back to once every 12 days and you can still maintain it, that's a very, very small amount of deadlifting you still have to do to maintain it. 
And so if we get smart, we can, we can maintain certain things um, and, and not have to be burning those, you know, like full attention. And the, the, um, the great image we use is a four burner stove. So you have three things on the stove that are just simmering and one that you're boiling like crazy and stirring because you're really focusing on that one thing. The other three you can kind of ignore. And that's, that's a really important aspect of it. Um, you know, there's a guy named Joel Jameson that wrote a book called Ultimate MMA Conditioning. And it's a, it's a really good uh, perspective on, on that whole idea of, of transitioning cycles and things like that. And one of the, one of the great points that he makes is, is that you can maintain your conditioning once, once you've built certain levels of these things, you can maintain the conditioning through sport specific practice. Um, and you can, you know, if you get the strength up, you get the power up, you just have to figure out the right recipe for your athlete or for yourself to make sure that those stay up. The problem is everybody's like, Oh yeah, I lifted weights in December and then I'll do it again next December to get strong again. And so they always start at the same crappy level. And so then they think that strength training is BS because it doesn't work for them. Well, it's because they don't know how to do it. Right. It's the same reason I think most things on the internet are BS. It's just because I don't understand them. <laughs> well, I think it's Asimov that said anything that you can't understand is akin to magic. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the point on the strength training, I'll use that as an example because I've been guilty of this in the past and I see it a lot where it's, well, you know, I, I got to 440 in the deadlift because we're using that as an example. Now then I got to 450, then I got to 475 and it's a bit of a singular focus yeah. on, on, on one aspect. Um, and particularly as men, I think, it, you know, it, it feels good, right? To build a brag that you, you did a certain lift. Yeah. And then you've got to start the question of, how strong do I need to be for jujitsu? Am I ever first and foremost going to try to deadlift my opponent right. off the ground statically between my legs? Not to say that it's not a good exercise. I, I love the deadlift, but you've got to get, you kind of need to set or, or work with someone to set these benchmarks, to set these goals of go, yeah. Yeah, okay, you can invest the time on getting stronger, but you're yeah. not a power lifter. You're yeah. an athlete for a particular sport. Yes. Yeah. And I think that that's a really good point. And that's one of the things is like the, the pursuit of those things is infinite. I mean, like, and it's funny, you know, 440, that's a, that's a pretty good deadlift, right? But that's like 40% of the world record. Like you're not, you know, like, like it kind of sucks. Yeah. So that's like being able to run a, like a, you know, a hundred, hundred meters in 20 seconds. You know? <laughs> you know, it's like, pretty slow. Yeah. And so, but, but so the, the, but the point that's, that you made is really, is really important. Is like, you know, like climbers can do pull-ups, right? They're, they're, they have really good upper body strength. Um, you know, some climbers can do 20 pull-ups with one arm, right? There are climbers that can do, you know, there's a guy named Magnus Mitbo, who's a, a really great European climber that can do multiple, like, I don't even know how many, I got tired of counting. Um, pull-ups one arm on one finger right <laughs> so in like at some point we've we've maxed out that that thing and there's something else you need to be working on and so here's the thing if you have an athlete that's willing to invest three hours a week in gaining two percent in something that they're really really strong at you need to as a coach be able to take that athlete and go hey let's take that three hours a week and we'll invest it in something that you're really not that good at and we'll try to try to bring that level up, try to bring out that, that level. And so with our climbers, 
I don't really care how much they can deadlift, but I want them to be able to do enough so that they don't get hurt um, doing the sport and that they can build the capacity for the sport. Um, one of the great things about, about resistance training is it's a very, very efficient way of getting work done. Yeah. And, and, and like climbing sometimes isn't all that taxing if you're really, really efficient at it. You know, the more efficient you get, the less uh, great workout it is. And that's one of the interesting things like with running. If I go out and I run the same five-mile loop every other day or something, each time I run it, I'll burn just a little bit fewer calories because I'm getting more and more and more efficient at that loop. And so I either need to try to make myself go faster or run further or something else to make sure that I'm continuing to adapt rather than just getting efficient. I think people can also make the mistake along those lines of, uh, let, let's, let's say, uh, let's use a deadlift again, right? Cause we've been using that as an example where I'm just going to stick with 440. I'm going to stick with 440 and go, I'm going to maintain my strength. But the truth yeah. is the way that the body adapts, if you're not progressively overloading the system, you will actually decline over yeah. time so you've got to find ways it doesn't need to be just going heavier as we've talked about yeah but you've got to find ways to smartly and cleverly progressively overload the system over time yeah. otherwise you'll not just stagnate you'll decline yes and and i think that's a really a really good argument in order uh uh for teaching people uh, variations on exercise um like having them switch like you know somebody that's really into deadlifting having them switch into a cycle of kettlebell swings switch into an explosive version of the same pattern mm -hmm. right um you know swings snatches you know going from uh, a bench focus to uh, a difficult one-arm push-up focus um and for our climbers i i'm a huge fan of them taking um you know a full month off and doing some other kind of sport just because of the the damage to the connective tissue and and the strain that's on the fingers like go go surfing for a while you know, how often how often per year would you ask them to do that i'd say four weeks a year whether it's one full month or two two week periods yeah um, you know it's interesting when we when we program for our athletes we program in four week blocks and that's 13 blocks a year and so if you go, okay, we're going to have 12 training blocks this year. They're all psyched because they're like, oh man, I'm going to train year round. But you also sneak in this 13th four week period where they get to be sick or go on vacation or whatever. And you can spread that throughout the year if you want to, but it's really, really effective at keeping those athletes healthy and going because the athlete that's trying to go hard all the time or needs to work out or needs to exercise, they're the ones that are going to burn out early and they're going to get injured early in the program. Do you find that it gives them a, a big mental break as well? Yeah, I think, I think it's important to take that break because the pressure of always performing and always, you know, like I've got to go to the gym, I got to hit my head against this training program today, I got to do these things, that it gets to you whether it's, it's a feels like a good stress or not. And so taking that, taking that time away, I think is, is super critical. And you mentioned earlier, you didn't mention the name, feel free to use a name or not to use a name, but you said you work with one of the best climbers in, in, in the US. So you're working with you know, some top, top athletes. How do you go about persuading them to take the rest? Um, well, luckily, uh, uh, this particular guy d doesn't need that. You know, he likes to go mountain biking and go, you know, go to the beach and stuff like that. Uh, but I, I think it's really interesting because you have to, again, pull it back to their performance. Mm. It's like, you've been doing this program the way that you're doing it, um, 
for you know five years? Are you pleased with your performance? Does your performance feel optimized? Um, and if they're not, and it never is, but if you know, like, because if they're totally kicking ass, they're not going to call me, right? They, they're just like, man, I just keep getting better every year. I'm stronger than I've ever been. You know, like, the money's rolling in, right? No, they, they, everybody hits this plateau where their performance starts to suck. And it almost always has to do with recovery. It's, it's recovery or, uh, or focus on some specific aspect of the sport. Um, we have, you know, there's this unlimited progressive grade scale and there's harder grades all over the country everywhere. And, and if you're not continuing to kind of climb your way up that, um, the levels, um, there, there probably is something fundamentally wrong with your programming. And the same thing with, with jujitsu. If you're stuck at, at a certain belt level, it's like either your conditioning sucks or you really need to work on your skills. I think jujitsu is at a competition level, but because you can do very well in jujitsu and be do actually nothing off the mat. I don't recommend it for longevity, and I think your body will end up broken. But there are people that it's a little different in terms of the progression. But I absolutely, I absolutely get the point. Um, for you know, from from a physical perspective, certainly, right? Yeah. If you are a competitive jujitsu fighter, um, I was going to ask you what, and maybe I think you've touched on this already when you said about the rest piece. What would you do if someone that comes in that's already at a top level, or some of the people you are working with that are at a top level? What are the kind of things that you do to push the performance when they're already at see from an outside world, seemingly yeah. at, at, at a peak? Well, it's it's interesting because a, a conversation with any athlete is really enlightening if you can ask the right questions. And all of them will have preferences toward a certain style. Like they're, they tend to be more explosive or they tend to be, be a slow static climber um, or they tend to gravitate towards certain kinds of climbs that are um, – there's there are things that'll have really tiny holds and they're they're hard to hang on to or there'll be ones that have bigger holds but they're more stamina oriented because they're big overhanging things um, and so s ferreting out what what their particular weaknesses are um, is really important and so then finding a time in the year for them to focus on improving those eliminating those weaknesses um, because maintaining your strengths or or manipulating your strengths is quite easy to do for most of us. Um, like I can get right back up to, you know, my max finger strength level because I've got really strong fingers, but maybe my stamina isn't that good, mm -hmm. right? And so finding a time in the year, usually like right after their surfing vacation for them to come in and work on the things they are, are bad at um, is, is really important. And it's really, really interesting because we have so many um, really great climbers around and every single one of them has something that isn't optimized. You know, there's only one best climber in the world and, and it's really fascinating to watch his career because he's one of these guys that's, that's totally into optimizing and improving his performance. And he's just, just like miles ahead of almost everybody else. Who, who is, who is the, that, that person? His name's Adam Andra and he's from the Czech Republic. Um, yeah. And he's just fabulous to watch. I was, and I was going <clears throat> to to take what you say in a little, well, not a little further so much, but to bring it back to a point that you, you were making earlier. Let's use a finger strength example. Your finger strength is, incre is incredible, but your endurance sucks. Sometimes it can, it can 
take a beat into the ego to go, well, actually, I've got to work on something that doesn't work. But if you bring it back to the point where to maintain your strength actually doesn't take that much of the overall volume, if you're smart about it, you can keep the same level and bring up those other areas by not yeah. and not lose in what are yeah. your strengths. Yeah. And let's say maintain, maintenance is is. 90% or above, right? So like, I, I don't need you to be at your absolute one rep max. Like if mm. I can keep you above 90% in, in any particular category, I'm really happy with that. Especially if I took you and I'm like, okay, I'm going to train you up for a marathon and we're just going to have you run in distance three days a week and I can still keep you deadlifting uh, 400 pounds or more. That's really great. Because I know that you're within hitting distance of your max all the time. And we don't need to be at, at those max levels. But if we can get those levels up, maintain them pretty well, that's really great. And then we just need to find those markers for those, for those athletes. You know, vertical jump is a, is a great uh, test of, of lower body power, of, of total body power. But um, if we can keep that number pretty high, if we can keep those grip numbers pretty high, um, I think we're doing really great. And it, and it is, just becomes a matter of paying really close attention and, and taking some time to, to look at where those numbers are. And it all comes back to measurement. It does. And, and it's hard because not everybody likes to get measured. And the thing that sucks is then we start trying to train to the test. So then all of a sudden they're using the strain gauge every single workout and trying to beat it. But that's the thing. It's like if we can test them once a month, do it as, you know, we just throw the test in between warm up and a normal training session. The testing could take 10 minutes. Just get some good numbers, things that matter. You know, did this, you know, is this athlete maintaining their body weight? How's their vertical jump? How's their finger strength? Yeah, it's very, very simple, right? Yeah. I know you've only got a few minutes because you've got a class. I've got to go pick the kids up as well. So want to you know, bring, bring it to, to a close shortly. Um, any kind of closing thoughts, comments you'd, you'd leave with people? Um, I think that, the, the most important thing is if your training's not working, there's, there's something wrong with it. It's not like you're doing everything right. You, you probably get this comment and I do all the times like I'm doing everything right, but it's not, it's not happening for me. Um, you know, doing everything right. It means doing everything right. Mm -hmm. You know, are you sleeping enough? Are you eating properly? Are you giving yourself enough rest in between? Um, are, you know, are you willing to actually give a full, uh, you know, full try on a completely new training program. You know, we all have prejudices and things that are, are non-negotiable for us, but it's usually our non-negotiables that hold us back. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important for athletes to look at that and get other eyes on them. Because I'll tell you, if, if you put um, a 10 minute video of somebody climbing together, I can sort out a whole bunch of stuff uh, that we can improve. And it doesn't matter how good that climber is. Yeah, just just by vi just by visually looking at them and seeing what's seeing what's going on. Yep, uh, Charlie Francis, who I love, famous Canadian track coach, said, uh, "If it looks right, it flies right," and that's the thing. It's like if you if you can see that guy and you watch him climbing, it's just, it's the same as watching somebody on the mat. I'm sure it's like that guy is awesome, you know, because you can just see it right away. And it's, yeah. you, you watch the sport enough, and and uh, all of a sudden you got pretty good eyes for it. It's a it's a 
jujitsu can be a little bit harder to break apart because of the complexity and how adaptable it is as as a sport but you do see i when i see look people just w- walking around how they hold their posture yes when they do certain warm the warm-up exercises are very very good you can instantly see that okay your core activation and your glute activation is not where it should be and a lot often yeah. it's just training but um you, you and i, I I, I always chat to my wife and we're walking around and I can, I just look at body mechanics all the time and I can instantly, well, yeah. I say instantly see, but you can kind of start to guess where they're tight, where they're loose. Yeah. And most people are walking around with terrible postures these days. Yeah. So um, <laughs> yeah. You can probably guess, you know, how fast they can sprint just based on the way they walk through the mall. Right. <laughs> yeah, completely. Yeah. Not at all. Not, not fast at all. Yeah. Faster than my 440 pound deadlift, maybe. Yeah. Um, so I'll, 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 of course, put all the links in the show notes, but I know you've only got a couple of minutes. But talk a little bit about you know where people can find you and, and the stuff that you've got available on the website as well. Yeah, so most of our stuff is really focused on training for climbing. We have a whole bunch of free articles, free videos, um, and uh, we put up as much stuff as we can. We really are... Uh, are, are doing our best to provide the information that we can. Um, I've got a few books for sale on training for climbing, um, strength and conditioning uh, focus on a few of them. Um, and all of that is available at my site, which is called climbstrong.com. And you can find me on Instagram. Instagram's really the only thing I keep up on social media wise, and it's at Steve Bechtel. Steve Bechtel. So guys, go check that out. You can you can tell just from scratching the surface of Steve's knowledge the some of the stuff that we've touched on here. Um, you know, it's it's, in, it's invaluable, I think. Um, and there's so much tra- translation across the different sports, even though we're training different things, how we need to approach the training and you know, with the fo- with the focus on certain physical aspects as well. I think there's a huge crossover. So I think you'd certainly do yourselves a favor by by checking out that material. Lawrence, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. You too. Thank you so much, Steve. All right, man. Um, Take care.